the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss how do you deal with tragedy in your life? And then we're joined by the Senior Editor and Director of Communications at the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by my co-host Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is off for the week enjoying a vacation. The last two days, I've just kind of been on my own, but not today. I have a guest co-host. She is an author, co-host of Christianity Today's Surprised by Grief podcast. That is Clarissa Mall. Clarissa, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Oh, thank you. It's always nice to have somebody else to talk to. The last couple of days, just <laughs> talking to myself. Uh, but yes, you, you, you've been interviewed before on the show, but, but, uh, you took up the mantle of, I will, I will spend the whole day with you. So we're ready. We're ready. So thanks so much for doing this. We're glad, uh, here on this summer day. But Clarissa, I thought we'd spend just this first time just helping people get to know you. You're going to be with us today and on Friday. Uh, why don't you just tell us about yourself? Tell us your story. Sure. Well, I hail from beautiful New England. I grew up here and bounced around living in big cities across the United States before landing back here again. Uh, my husband passed away in 2019. Actually, uh, Monday was uh, the two-year anniversary of his mm. funeral. So uh, Rob died in a hiking accident on our family vacation in Mount Rainier National Park. And, uh, you know, even though I can say it pretty smoothly now, it's a reality that has absolutely rocked my life. Yeah. And uh, it has reshaped everything of who I am. And I think the last two years have been a lot of picking through the rubble, figuring out what I can keep of the life we lived before and where God is making things new. Yeah. And again, Clarissa, so she knows of what she speaks as the co-host of Christianity Today's Surprised by Grief podcast. And and uh, I know you're very open. You've written a lot about the loss of your husband. And I I mean, I'm sure you hear this from people all the time. I remember when it happened. It was a, a, a pretty big story. And uh, I, I let me start there. What was it like uh, grieving such an unbelievable loss, but almost publicly? Because like I said, especially in the church world, a lot of us heard the story, Christianity Today and other things. How did that make it um, more complicated for you to kind of grapple with that loss? Well, you know, the chaplain who met us to give us the news that night in July 2019 uh, recommended that I give my phone to someone else for a while. Mm. And that is what I did. I gave it to a trusted friend and I did not pay any attention to what was going on in the world. Honestly, mm. I don't think I would have been able to take it in anyways because of the shock of that yeah. sudden loss. And uh, that space away from social media, away from the media, away from news was a real gift to me in acute grief uh, to just be able to hunker down and do the important self-care of literally eating and sleeping and mm. uh, taking walks around the neighborhood. All these things that were just going to become a vital foundation for my survival afterwards. Uh, but there came a shift where... 
uh, reaching out with folks and hearing the stories of their interactions with Rob uh, was a really rich experience for me. Mm. And I think that's part of what prompted me to begin writing to 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 find other ways to remember him, to meet other people who remembered parts of him I'd never known. Uh, and in that way, grieving in public became a gift when I was ready, a way of continuing my love for him, continuing his life in this world, his words in this world, uh, because he was a journalist, um, being mm-hmm. able to treasure those things. Um, it was a, a benefit I never would have seen. Yeah, yeah. And now we'll, we will get back to your story. And later on in the show, we're going to talk much more about tragedy and grief and try to help people out there who may also be struggling. But you said you're living up in New England. Why don't you tell us about your family, kids, uh, all sorts of stuff? What's going well, Tell us about your family. Yeah, I've got four children, uh, two teenagers, one almost teen and mm. a lower elementary. And boy, they are just the joy of my life. Uh, <laughs> Rob and I wanted a big family and, uh, I am so, uh, pleased <laughs> that we uh, that we went ahead and made that choice because they bring so much life to my life. I think they uh, kids, you know, they draw you forward on tough days and uh, they have a, a vivaciousness that has helped me to um, find my own pace again as a grieving person. Uh, we've got a great rescue pup who loves us dearly <laughs> and I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to add another one to our mix. Uh, you know, get the old dog to teach the new one it's tricks so we'll see about that <laughs> <laughs> so we had we have two dogs in our house got one over covid and we love them both to death but it was a game changer yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it did change but I, now we love it but at the beginning i was like oh man what did we do uh so you mentioned having four kids man they were at such a tender impressionable important age when your husband passed away. And again, uh, you've been very open about that, but what was it like to grieve the loss of a husband while trying to mother four children who lost their father? What Tell us about the complexities of that. Well, children uh, grieve very differently than adults do. And I think that was one of the first pieces that I had to come to grips with, uh, that their experience of loss would not look like mine, even though we'd lost the same person. And mm. um, so for me, parenting became trying to live as normal a life as possible for them and give them space to grow where they needed to grow, uh, to grieve where they needed to grieve, but to try to keep some kind of equilibrium in our family, which, you know, uh, albeit to say, it's hard to do when you have... Uh, <laughs> lost your spouse. But uh, having that goal in mind really gave me a central purpose, I think, as I began parenting after loss to say, okay, this is the thing I'm going to do today. I'm going to try to keep normal rhythms for our meals. I'm going to keep normal rhythms for them going to youth group. And it mm. required that I reached out and and uh, you know took on uh, care from other people that I hadn't expected. And uh, building that village was an important piece of especially those first few months and even the first year of learning to live without him. Yeah. And we're, gonna, again, going to talk later uh, about specifically community and why it's important. Uh, let's end this part getting to know you this way. Let's ask two questions. Tell us about the church you go to. And then uh, why do you love you move to New England? Uh, this is kind of the time of year, this in the fall where New England's beautiful. Like, why do you love New England? Why'd you go back there? 
Oh, well, I attend a uh, small congregational church on the North Shore of Boston that mm. was built uh, in the 1700s. So it's really wow. old. We sit in box pews and it's just beautiful. I love sitting there and on Sunday mornings, knowing that other saints before have sat where I sat and uh, really roots me in the communion of saints and in church history. I love that. And um, I think that's part of what I love about New England, their rootedness in history. History is important mm. to us here. We save old buildings. We save old paraphernalia uh, because we know that our story, what we live now, is is always rooted in what has come before us. So yeah. I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. So I have an aunt and uncle who live in Concord, and so we'd go up there on occasion. Both my uh, both my cousins got married in Park Church right there in, uh, yes. in downtown Boston. So uh, it, Boston's always so weird because those of us who aren't used to it, like you said, everything is about. This is when this was built. This is how old this is. This is how you're like, man, I'm used to the suburbs of Chicago where it's like everything was built in the 90s. <laughs> we're pretty proud of that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're excited that Clarissa is going to be with us all day today. She's also going to be with me on Friday. So we're looking forward to that again. Uh, Clarissa Mall is an author, co-host of a podcast called Surprised by Grief. That's uh, through Christianity Today. Also the host of the weekly Hope Writers Podcast. We're going to ask her all sorts of questions about those things. But next, Clarissa and I are going to be joined by Brett McCracken. Brett's been on the show before. He's senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, the author of The Wisdom Pyramid. Also, we're going to talk to him about a couple different articles that he's written, including the depressing dead end of, quote unquote, your truth. And he was uh, recently on a podcast discussion about deconstructing your faith, deconstruction and the church. So we have lots to talk to Brett next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thrilled to be joined today and Friday with a guest co-host while Aubrey is out of town. Uh, that guest co-host is Clarissa Mall. so thankful to have Clarissa with us. And we're excited now to have you joined by a friend of the show, someone who's been on multiple times. He's the senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, the author of a book called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul, in a post-truth world. That is Brett McCracken. Brett, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's always our pleasure. Hey, for people who didn't listen last time you were on or don't remember, could you just reintroduce yourself so people can get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, sure. Um, I work for the Gospel Coalition as senior editor, and um, I kind of focus on uh, arts and culture content is my editorial purview, but I do a lot with our video content as well, and various other things. And I'm a dad, I'm a husband, live in Southern California. We have two little two little guys, age three and one, mm. and uh, we're potty training our three-year-old this week. So it's <laughs> quite a adventure. Um, yes. Yeah, but that's, yeah. that's me. <laughs> Three and one. That is uh, that is very little sleep going on in your home, I'm sure. But how fun. How fun. Hey, uh, Brett, back in July, the Gospel Coalition ran an excerpt, I believe, adapted excerpt from your book, yeah. The Wisdom Pyramid. Uh, it was called this. It was called The Depressing Dead End of, quote, Your Truth. I think it's such an important concept for us to wrestle with. Talk to us about just this idea culturally of your truth and, and really mm -hmm. just kind of the problem with that. Yeah, I mean, I 
it's it, it's puzzling to me that um we don't it's kind of it's not self-evidently like uh wrong to people the idea of your truth because just those two words put together uh, don't make sense right like mm-hmm. how can there be your truth like the pairing doesn't make sense it, it would be one thing to say like your preference your dream your interpretation like that's fine but your truth like no like <laughs> if truth exists at all it's true for everyone you know whether it's mm-hmm. you or me or anyone else so yeah but beyond that kind of just s- syntax like puzzlement it's just as an idea and this is what i focus on uh in this article is just it's a lonely idea because if mm. if we if we insist that your truth is a thing that i could have my truth you could have your truth and we can all just go on our merry way with our truth that sounds nice but in practice it's it destroys any possibility of community consensus common ground mm-hmm. uh, a shared you know culture where we have the same assumptions and the same vocabulary so uh, i i talk about how the your truth idea it just puts us on a depressing lonely path where um well ultimately it's just kind of a insular self-referential way of living um that isn't you know satisfying because if if i'm the the if the buck stops with me for everything every mm-hmm. every question of truth every assertion if it's all just what my gut tells me or what my you know preferred truth is that's just it's lonely uh, yeah. to say nothing of just being totally shaky and um unsustainable so yeah well you know as i talk to grieving people i see this epidemic of loneliness uh and that our culture seems yeah. to have running beneath everything else and i wonder though you know your truth sounds so liberating what is it yeah. what does it take for someone to to realize that it's actually lonely not liberating what is the, is there a particular yeah. moment that happens when that clicks for them yeah i mean it's also the logic of consumerism in in terms of like you know we're fed this idea that like satisfaction in life comes by just following your desires and following your heart to what whatever the next thing is that is going to satisfy you supposedly but the thing about consumerism is it never satisfies and it's this never exhausted pursuit of the, the final answer for my happiness and I think that's similar to what's going on with the your truth idea. Like it's, it seems liberating at first to kind of break free supposedly from the shackles, the constraints of um, a system of truth beyond myself. But once you, sh- you break free from that and you're totally autonomous and you're totally like going your own way, um, I think eventually you do <laughs> start to realize, well, that not not all of my choices or not all of the places that my truth has led me have been as satisfying as I thought they would be. And sometimes it leads to just straight up like heartache and pain, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. And we're, we're not often the best judge of our um, prospects in life and our yeah. paths of happiness. Um, it, it should play a part. I'm not saying we should uh, erase the self or eradicate our own, um, you know, desires completely. But 
um, it's much more satisfying to live in community with people who can function as mirrors to us and, and kind of help us see ourselves and help us determine the best route for our life. Um, we're created for that, right? God created us for community, not to be these automatons who just march through life beating to our own desire drum, yeah. you know? That's so, interesting. I never thought of that conversation around loneliness. I think that's really helpful. What would you say to the people? You know, one of the things people always throw at towards believers, towards Christians, is just it's arrogant to claim that there's any truth at all. We've all heard that through the years. How would you answer that in this conversation? The people who are like, there's just an arrogance to even claiming you could know what truth is at all. Yeah. I mean, I think it just breaks down to, <laughs> to insist that truth doesn't exist. Like you can't functionally live in the world without believing some things are absolutely true, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's something like the laws of gravity or the fact that I, I can't fly, you know, it, that's just fundamentally true, right? <laughs> um, if, 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 we, if we really wanted to put into practice a world without truth, then we shouldn't obey traffic laws because I could just insist that, you know, my truth is that green means stop and red means go. And mm -hmm. you can have a different truth, but I'm going to insist that it's this way. So if everyone has their own truth, you literally can't function in society. Uh, any sort of functioning world depends on some things being agreed upon as true and beyond dispute and objective. Um, so anyone who says that you just have to, you know, get them talking a little bit about the implications of it and they'll yeah. realize, okay, actually you're right. Like there, there are some things that I admit are, are absolutely true. Yeah. That's a really good word because it, it sounds good to throw out there like, Oh, well, no, you can't know truth until you start having that conversation. Like you said, I think that's yeah. really helpful. Again, uh, the one of the many good articles that Brett's got up at the Gospel Coalition, The Depressing Dead End of Your Truth. Brett McCracken is Senior Editor and Director of Communications at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, you also had the, the opportunity to lead or moderate a discussion panel that turned into a podcast uh, with Alyssa Childers, Preston Perry, and Trevin Wax around the topic of deconstruction. It was called Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstruction and the church. And this idea of deconstruction is something we're hearing a lot of these days in the church. Yeah. There's almost a badge of honor with deconstruction. So let me start there. Would help people understand who may not be familiar with it. What is kind of this phenomenon of deconstruction and what do you think the church should be kind of doing with this movement? Yeah. You know, on one hand, it's not a new thing. It's just, it's a new word for an old thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people have always doubted aspects of Christianity and, you know, in any given Christian has probably had a, a season of their faith where they've asked hard questions or, or doubted certain things. Um, the deconstruction phenomenon though, is kind of the 21st century iteration of doubt. Um, and it's, it's very much fueled by the internet and kind of, different corners of the internet, podcasts, websites that feed people's deconstruction. So this topic is, is not unrelated to what I talk about in the wisdom pyramid in the sense that in a world where someone's local church is less of an influence over their spiritual trajectory 
than the online diet of information and voices that are feeding them. Um, it's, it's not surprising that a lot of people are going through deconstruction because um, their, their spiritual questions and, and conversations are happening outside of the context of their local church and in this kind of internet space. So it, it, there's a lot of aspects to it. Certain issues, you know, are commonly um, the catalyst for deconstruction journeys, things like sexual ethics and um, hell and God's wrath, um, exclusivity, uh, science and the Bible, you know, biblical authority generally, I think is a big one. Um, so not every deconstruction journey looks the same, but uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely increasingly common. And I think if you ask your average pastor, campus minister, youth pastor, they would have lots of, of examples of people, young people in their, in their um, discipleship circles who are kind of going through this. Um, so that's why we, we, we published a book on it. Um, TGC did this year called Before You Lose Your Faith. And then we did this uh, panel discussion that I moderated just to kind of start giving pastors and parents and others more resources to think through how do we disciple people on deconstruction journeys. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uh, on a house hunt right now, and I'm <laughs> looking at houses that are teardowns and houses that have been taken down to the studs and houses that have been around since the 50s or 60s and no one's done anything to update them at all. And I'm just wondering, is there value in taking our faith down to the studs, as it were? You know, mm-hmm. I can see that... that uh, a teardown is not advantageous uh, and not good for our faith and leaving it alone, sort of calcifying isn't good, but is there value yeah. in, in some middle ground there? Yeah. I mean, I think definitely there's, there's value in doubt and deconstruction insofar as the, the ultimate goal is, is reconstruction and kind of building a, a more sturdy foundation for your faith, a more durable structure, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I think there, there are examples of that working well. Um, but I do think the, in my experience, like the lion's share of deconstruction that's happening, especially in certain internet, um, communities is, is not as much interested in reconstruction. It's, and it's also, you know, it takes away some of the core building materials, uh, like, like scriptures, uh, unassailable authority such that reconstruction is impossible. So if you deconstruct, if you demo a house, but in the process of demo, you, you know, do away with the foundation completely and all you have is quicksand, it's impossible to rebuild on that. And I think that that's what's happening with some deconstruction journeys that um, when when scripture's authority is the thing that is uh, done away with, it's impossible to rebuild um, a sturdy faith on that foundation. So, yeah. So that's my fear is that um, so many deconstruction journeys go through that process where scripture is no longer trusted and there's, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What would you say to the parent out there uh, who's just terrified that their kid is going to, or is in the process of kind of deconstructing, if you will, kind of rejecting kind of the faith they were grown up into. Do you have any word of wisdom to the parents about how to treat their their teenager or their um, their young adult in that kind of process? 
Yeah, I was just having a conversation over coffee yesterday with an, an older gentleman um, who goes to my church who has a college-age son who's starting to go through a deconstruction journey. And some of the advice I gave him, um, one, I think being able to have open conversations is key. So you, you don't want your child to be doing this deconstruction you know, away from you or away from the church. So as much as you can, encourage them to have open conversations in a, in the church with their pastors, with you as a parent. So just creating a, a safe space to have those open conversations, I think, is one of the best things that that you can do. Um, another thing that I I think is helpful is just seeing the big picture and and recognizing that everyone's spiritual journey is long and uh, your your spiritual you know, the state of your soul is not, you know, decided until your dying breath. Right. So right. God, uh, his reach is not, uh, is not short. He can, he can grab anyone back from the brink, uh, you know, at any point. So I would say stay prayerful, mm-hmm. trust God, be as faithful in your own Christian walk as you can be to be an example um, for the loved ones in your life who are deconstructing. And uh, yeah, just, um, try to have open conversation about it. It's a good word. Well, Brett McCracken, he's the senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, also author of The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Brett, before we let you go, where can people read you? I know at the Gospel Coalition, but where can they connect with you on social media? Where can they read more of your stuff? Well, I, most of my writing is at the Gospel Coalition these mm-hmm. days, but you can check out my books on Amazon. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, whatever your social media of choice might be. But um, yeah, I'm mostly writing at TGC these days. Awesome. We encourage people to go check out the Gospel Coalition. We quote the Gospel Coalition here all the time. So we'd encourage you to do that. Brett McCracken, again, Senior Editor, Director of Communications at the Gospel Coalition. Brett, it's always great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you both so much. Absolutely our pleasure. We're glad that you're with us today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by my co-host, Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out of town, and we are thrilled that filling in for Aubrey today is Clarissa Mall. Earlier in the show, Clarissa shared her story, uh, specifically uh, how just, I believe you said, just uh, two years ago, last month or so, was the anniversary of the loss, the tragic and sudden loss of your husband, Rob, um, in a hiking accident. And then I would love to talk a little bit more about that, Clarissa, a little bit more about tragedy, because there is a lot of people out there who may not be dealing, obviously, with the same level of tragedy, but but we deal with it uh, in life and, and we deal with this. And you say on your website here, you say this, sorrow is a hard road. You don't need to walk it alone. Let's discover grace in grief together. I think that is such an important word. Could you talk to people out there? Because I think when we're in grief, we often kind of isolate ourselves, right? We go off on our own. Can you talk about the importance uh, of of grieving together and, and when we're in our deepest, darkest sorrows of having people around us? Help us understand why that's so important. Well, you know, I think that um, 
grief is a funny thing. It, it just, we, we know that loss will touch us in life, uh, but we somehow never expect it. <laughs> Even though no. we know that death is a reality, we're always surprised. And, uh, and so we often don't know how to deal with this unwelcome visitor that sort of arrives with, with bags packed at our front step and says, I'm moving mm-hmm. in. And, um, there is a time certainly for, uh, for solitary time spent in grieving. I don't want to ever discount that because I think that's an important dimension of processing your loss and mm-hmm, learning to mm-hmm. integrate it into the life that you're going to live without your person. And yet, uh, I think we err on that side more often than not. Uh, we err on the side of being alone when really the powerful uh, presence of community can be an amazing force for good in our lives in the midst of grief. I like to talk about grief as a companion because it's not something that ever goes away in this life. Uh, you know, I've mm. talked to women who lost babies through miscarriage. Years later, they'll still talk about their four miscarriages. You know, those babies are never gone from their minds. And... um you know, folks who have lost a spouse or a child, uh, you never forget about that person. And that grief comes up from time to time throughout your life. And so it's important to have a community of support around you who will carry you in those times when grief shows up and surprises mm-hmm. you again. Uh, it would be one thing if grief were a one and done. If we could move yeah. from A to B and it would be over, maybe we could shoulder through alone. But when we know that grief is going to walk with us all of our earthly life, it really highlights the importance of community, whether it's a church or a support group, family, friends, uh, you know, community can be found in the most unusual of places, but we all need it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A while back, back in February, you wrote an article called Four Ways to Love Someone Blindsided by Loss over the Gospel Coalition. But before we talk about four positive things, what are what are things that you would tell people when they're helping, you know, maybe a friend of theirs or a loved one is going through a tragedy? What are the, what are things that we often get wrong? Either things we say or things we do. What do you wish people knew? Like, hey, don't do that, or or maybe think about this. Does anything? Or are there certain things that come to mind for you? Sure, I think there are a lot of things that we do, and and I think a lot of the times we know we're doing them and we can't stop our tongues almost. Uh, You just start babbling and words come out and and you think, I know this isn't doing any good, but how do I fill the silence? And uh, I think that's the first step. Be okay with letting there be silence. Uh, You know, we often feel like we need to give our own story to show that we understand or we need to give some sort of platitude or a Bible verse to kind of remind people that heaven exists. And, you know, for the believer, um, I haven't run into a grieving Christian who forgot that heaven existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we don't need all of the words. Sometimes what we do need is presence, the gift Mm -hmm. of uh, someone sitting beside us on the couch with no words when we just need to cry or uh, someone coming to be with us at a church function and say, hey, I just didn't want you to be alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that gift of presence, I think, makes up for all of the other fumbling that we that we do to fill the space that really can't be filled uh, when grief moves in. Yeah. And again, your article, Four Ways to Love Someone Blindsided by Loss, you mentioned presence, which is so huge. What are some other ways uh, to, that we can love people who have been blindsided by loss? I think anticipating needs is an important one. Uh, instead of asking, how can I help you? Simply saying, I'm running to the grocery store. I'm going to grab you a gallon of milk. 
let me know if you don't need it. Um, and yeah. just, or maybe just even showing up with that gallon of milk and saying, Hey, I was thinking of you. It was on sale and I bought two. Uh, anticipating needs can be a really important way to care for someone. Another way to do it is, um, to think about the daily rhythms of your life and how you can be present for a grieving person in that. You know, one of the first things that's hard for a grieving person to do all of those firsts, uh, a first doctor's visit. Maybe you could mm. volunteer to drive a friend to a doctor's visit after they've lost their person. Uh, a first dentist visit. You know, you're sitting in the chair, the dentist wants to talk and they've got their hands in your mouth and, oh my, suddenly I don't want to talk about what I've done this summer because I buried my husband. And knowing mm. that there's a caring friend in the car waiting to drive me home, that means so much. Uh, so yeah. all of these practical kind of everyday things that seem so so mundane, really, are just invaluable in the life of a grieving person. Yeah, yeah. I've always found it amazing uh, that your husband wrote a book called, people may not know this, your husband wrote a book called The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come. Uh, it got released back in 2010. Uh, I guess, A, uh, why did he write that book? Um, and B, does that give you some sense of comfort that your husband wrote a book like that? at knowing what was then to come later on in his life. Is that some sort of strangely comforting for you? It is. You know, there are a lot of ways that people try to hold on to their loved one after they die. Maybe you don't want to unload all of their items from the closet. You keep their shirts and their undershirts and their socks because it just feels too hard to let go of that person. And um, I feel like I got a gift. I got a gift mm -hmm. in 200 pages that he wrote about a topic that I didn't want to think about or talk about when we were married, but he felt was important because he had been a journalist. He had been a hospice volunteer, worked at a funeral home. He knew that talking about death was important. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's almost a token of his to say, hey, honey, keep talking about it. You know, this mm. tragic thing has happened and you could very easily turn away and, and say, no more. This is a topic I'll never talk about again, but keep doing it. This is important. Um, it's the kind of loving nagging that I think every wife appreciates. <laughs> loving nagging. That's a good one. That's a good way to put it. Again, the book that Rob wrote, Rob Mall, he wrote uh, The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come, which is such an important topic, like you said, for us to wrestle with. I'd encourage people. It came out in 2010. You can go find it, Amazon or wherever uh, it is that you get books. Well, I'm excited that Clarissa is joining us today, going to join us again on Friday. Coming up, what we're going to talk about next is I want to play something uh, that a politician said, and they use scripture to back up that has a lot of people shaking their heads. And Clarissa and I are going to use this as an opportunity to talk about how do we uh, apply and read and interpret the Bible well? We're going to talk about the Bible next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how do we handle the Bible well and why is it so important? And then we're joined by Robin Chambers. She's the executive director of advocacy for children at Focus on the Family. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, usually joined by Aubrey Sampson, my co-host, but Aubrey is out enjoying a vacation. Uh, so we are thrilled to be joined today and Friday by Clarissa Mall. It's not too intimidating, right? This has been pretty easy, don't you think? No, this is great. I'm enjoying it. Good, 
Good. Hey, uh, so I want us to talk about you. You know, you write often at the Gospel Coalition. Aubrey and I are both pastors. We talk about uh, the Bible and the importance and our love for the Bible. And I saw something flying around Twitter the other day. Uh, it's, I, I joked with you. It's kind of a laugh to keep from crying thing because you hear it and you're like, oh, that's funny. But oh, my gosh, that's so sad. It is uh, from a politician, somebody speaking before uh, a Senate committee, I think, on on securing elections and voting. Uh, and it's just 30 seconds long. I want you to hear this and then we're going to react to it. I believe this is God's work. And there's a wonderful scripture about the security of elections that I want to I want to read. And that maybe some of us may have never heard before. It's Second Peter 1.10. Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. I love that scripture because this is what our watchers do. All right. So if you couldn't follow what happened there, that lady uh, basically used Peter's words in First Peter about elections, making your election sure, which if you've been in churches, you know, that use of election means something wholly different. Uh, she used that as the reasoning and the background for why the Bible teaches that we need to make our voting, our elections secure. Uh, don't you think that's a, that's a good, uh, Clarissa, don't you think that's a, uh, that's an interesting uh, hermeneutical jump, don't you think? <laughs> well, there are all kinds of other uh, things you could say if you apply scripture in that manner, I guess, too. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I want to talk about the Bible because that one is so ridiculous that it's just kind of funny, but uh, we do know in churches and outside of churches, we often use the Bible. Uh, we can use it when we get it wrong. It can be weaponized. It can really teach some bad things. People can use it to teach a whole lot of things. And I think as Christians, we want people out there to love the Bible, to read the Bible, but also know how to apply the Bible well. And so I guess I would start there, Clarissa. How do you help people understand or what do you for yourself or teach other people about how to best understand what they are reading and apply the Bible well in their lives? Well, you know, when I when I went to seminary, I spent uh, my years in seminary at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in uh, Deerfield. Nice. And uh, I loved my time there and the study and the opportunity to sit under the teaching of wonderful scholars. Um, but I quickly learned that if I was going to thrive as I studied the Bible, I needed to not view it as a science fair project. Mm. Uh, the Bible could not be something that I dissected, that I put under a microscope, that I, you know, picked apart with tools, uh, because all I ended up with on the table at the end was a bunch of parts that didn't feel yeah. alive anymore. Uh, and so it was during that season where I really uh, came to this understanding that uh, of Hebrews 4.12, that the the word of God is alive and active. Uh, it's sharper than a sword. And if it's alive and active and sharp, I've got to touch it delicately. I need mm. to be very careful with how I uh, study the Bible, with how I approach it, how I use it, uh, with a kind of gentleness, in fact, and an awe that I come to Scripture, not as a scientist ready to pick it apart, but mm. more as an observer coming to see how it works organically and um, 
um, and what that liveliness is. And I think that's helped me to, um, to approach the Bible in a way that feels fresh in my devotional life. Um, but I think it also helps to guard against some of the proof texting and, um, and misuse that we sometimes can run into when we're trying to, um, really pick apart scripture and decode it, if you will. Yeah, it's a really good word. Uh, help people understand. What do you tell us about your Bible reading plan? Like, what do you do on a given day or a given week when it comes to scripture? And, and how do you make sure that you're not treating it, like you said, like a science experiment or, or a, uh, or a textbook from seminary or whatever it is? Help people understand what you do. Well, I like meditative practices. I think that's just kind of how I'm wired anyways. Uh, so I tend to not do exegetical studies all that often. More often than not, I sit with a verse and let it kind of ruminate inside of me, stew inside of me. Uh, and I'll repeat it in my thoughts throughout the day. Maybe there's a hymn that relates to it. So mm. there I'm pulling in some church history, uh, reading the story of the person who wrote it, their circumstances, and seeing how uh, scripture shaped their words. Uh, so it feels more maybe higgledy-piggledy than uh, an inductive Bible study. But I find that there's real richness in connecting church history and mm. And uh, theology, my own study of the Bible, and then just creating space for uh, God's Spirit to speak through His Word, which I believe is alive. Yeah, and and so people out there, someone's driving in their car right now, and they're like, "I know that I should read the Bible, uh, but I've never really learned." Like, yeah, it's great. She went to seminary. I got my master's. Like, it's great that you guys have that, but I never have. How how does somebody start? What would you tell that person who's like, "I don't even know where to start, how to start." Uh, and therefore, they just never do start. How, what would you say to that person? Well, I think for me, um, you know, I like to use the snowball effect. So I would say mm. start with a small book. You know, you don't need to start at the beginning of the Bible. You don't need to start with the Gospel of John. Maybe start with First John. That's a really short book. And, uh, you know, start with something small and immerse yourself in it. Don't feel like you need to read the Bible in a whole year to really be a great Christian. Uh, spend time focusing in on one chapter or a paragraph of verses, uh, something that allows you to bathe yourself in the good words of Scripture mm -hmm. without kind of the um, oppressive expectations of got to get it done. I think yes. it's when we feel like we've got to get it done that the um, that our our passion and the, uh, for scripture kind of fizzles out and, um, and then our intimacy dwanes. That's right. Yeah. When you view it as a homework assignment or you said like a, a science fair project, then, then it really loses its, uh, its importance. It's, uh, we lose our love for it. That's for sure. Uh, and I'd encourage people to go try out the YouVersion Bible app, like use technology. It's out there. Like they've got reading plans. They have, uh, more reading plans than you could ever imagine. And they help you walk. Uh, through it. All right. Here's a difficult Bible question for you. Favorite, if you had, had, had to choose your favorite book of the Bible, what would you choose and why? Ooh. Well, it's I, hard. I know it's like, it's like choosing between your kids. <laughs> I know, but, but I'm making you choose. My favorite ice cream flavor. Exactly. Um, yes. I think I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of study in the book of Ruth right now, and I'm a big fan of Naomi. Uh, she is a real grump when it comes to grief, and I appreciate her honesty, and I appreciate her uh, relentless pursuit of hope. So I think in this season of my life right now, um, I would choose the book of Ruth. 
Mm, that's a good one. That's good. You know which one I love? It's super short, uh, but I've preached through a couple of times is the, the little known book of Philemon in the New Testament. I think is such, I love it because it's just a story. It's like a story of forgiveness and you dive into it. And you're like, this is crazy. Uh, uh, and then, of course, I just love the Gospels. I love the Gospel of Luke into the book of Acts. So I would encourage people, go if you don't know where to start, go grab a reading plan at the YouVersion Bible app or uh, just get started. Ask somebody in your church, how do I start? Will you read with me? We've got to be men and women who use the Bible well, love the Bible, kind of are, are eating it up uh, and not using it as this person did at that we, of this clip that we already listened to. So always important to talk about the Bible. We want you to be men and women who love the Bible. Coming up next, Robin Chambers, Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family, is going to join us next as we talk about Sea Life 2021 video series and other things going on at Focus on the Family next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. My normal co-host, Aubrey Sampson, out of town this week. And we are thrilled to be joined today by my guest co-host, Clarissa Mull. And uh, Clarissa and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by Robin Chambers. Robin is the Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. Robin, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me on. So it's absolutely our pleasure. We got a bunch of things to touch on with you, uh, but I wanted to start here. Tell us about this new thing going on called the Sea Life 2021 video series. What is it uh, and, and what is it that you guys are trying to accomplish with this video series? Uh, thank you for asking, Brian. So it is um, really the impetus behind this was how do we have conversations? How do we begin to have a conversation with someone who maybe is not necessarily like-minded they, or they don't know how they feel about abortion? And so our goal really is to have an open door, have a conversation that's not um, contentious or vitriolic. We just really want to have a conversation, listen to one another. But sometimes we don't know how to start those conversations. And so that's what the digital episodes were really created to do It's just to start you know, throwing out a topic, let's talk about this and how do you feel and what happens here. And um, and you'll see through the episodes, we talk about when does life begin, but we also talk about really, really hard um, choices that people have had to make. And we talk about special needs. And so it's just, again, a way to begin a conversation with someone, not to beat them over the head, hey, you have to think like I do or feel like I do, but just, again, to have that conversation and kind of have a meeting of the minds, if you will, meet in the middle, and let's just have um, an adult conversation, and mm-hmm. let's talk to one another in a respectful way. And then, Robin, you've also been involved in a program called Option Ultrasound from the very beginning. And we've talked to the people at, at Focus on the Family about that before. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and tell us all about Option Ultrasound? Yeah, so that program started approximately 17 years ago, and it really was started out of a conversation, again, great conversation, um, about how can we focus on the family, really help drive down the number of abortions in the United States. And of course, it was working with and partnering with pregnancy centers across the United States. Those men and women are really the heroes. They're on the front lines. So we have the privilege of working with them to get a brand new ultrasound machine, or grants to train their nurses to actually run that ultrasound machine, digital client marking, anything that we can do to invest 
in that pregnancy center so that they can reach more of the abortion-minded women in their communities. And so for 17 years, we've been gathering statistics, and we know that more than 475,000 mamas have chosen life for their babies because of the counseling, the amazing counseling they get at the pregnancy center, and then, of course, followed on with that ultrasound. That introduces her to what's going on in her body and shows her there is a different choice than just the one that's presented to her by an abortion provider. One of the things that I found particularly interesting as I was uh, watching the videos and reading about Option Ultrasound is uh, the use of the word pre-born. Uh, I've been familiar with the pro-life movement for a long time, and uh, that was a word that was new to me. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack just the use of that word pre-born, why you're using it now, and uh, why you think it's important to, to call babies in the womb pre-born. Well, it actually was a decision that was made um, kind of at the leadership level with CareNet, Heartbeat, NIFLA, several other really um, large organizations that work with pregnancy centers. And we kept hearing that word at the at this pregnancy center level. And so we asked the same question you did. I was, okay, why are you, why is that now the new word? Um, and it really became part of how we give dignity to that child in the womb. Um, there was a negative connotation around the word un, um, unborn, made it seem like it wasn't a human, that it wasn't um, a life. And so we kind of made the decision within the pregnancy center movement um, to start using the word preborn to make um, kind of make the, the conversation more about this child is living, this child has a heartbeat, this child is human, this child is alive. And so that kind of became the reasoning behind using the word preborn. Yeah. And Robin, Focus on the Family does so much advocating for children and for, as you said, the preborn uh, and and in the fight in this abortion. Um, you know, it's much more than a debate, right? It is an actual fight going on. Uh, help our people understand why is Focus on the Family so invested uh, in the preborn and in the lives of mothers and wanting to see babies born? That might seem like an obvious question, but I think it would be helpful for people to hear why you guys advocate so hard. Actually, that was kind of a, a, a hard tug for Dr. Dobson. He just felt like, um, you know, with the decision of Roe versus Wade in 1973, that the culture was turning toward this um, kind of, not a, I hate to say flippancy, but almost a, a disregard um, for life in the womb because now all of a sudden it was legal. And so it felt like, oh, well, okay, then that's the right thing to do if it's legal. And doctor just really felt like, you know, going back to scripture, you know, you, you look at all the scriptures that talk about, you know, God knowing us before, you know, we were even in our mother's womb and, and, and he counts the hairs on our head. And just, just again, going back to scripture and knowing that that's the heart of God the Father became one of our pillars that focus on the family when Dr. Dobson founded Focus on the Family. And it's the sanctity of human life. And we always say from, you know, conception to natural death, you know, God cares about all those different pieces. And so that became a guiding principle at Focus on the Family, and we have not deviated from that in the 40-plus years we've been around. Hmm. Jim Daly, our president, is he is so incredibly pro-life. And every time we see him, it could be in the hallway passing, and he'll say, how are we doing? How are the pregnancy centers? Because he knows that they really are making the difference, life and death difference, every hmm. single day. So the ministry had just stood, they, we've stood behind that pillar for many, many years. 
know, one of the things that I really loved as I watched some of the Sea Life videos was to see Jim sitting around the table with folks mm-hmm. and having just a very normal kind of conversation. And one of the phrases that I've seen uh, Focus use recently around the pregnancy discussion is compassionate listening. And um, that's just really, uh, you know, I'm a almost a millennial Gen Xer, and I really like the idea of <laughs> compassionate listening. It sounds a lot gentler than kind of some of the warrior, uh, you know, imagery that has been used in the past uh, around the pro-life movement. And, um, you know, what's the role of compassionate listening now for um, for wooing and winning Mm -hmm. over uh, folks to a pro-life position? That really has been um, my desire in taking and kind of leading this at the Advocacy for Children Department. Um, You know, I've been in the movement for 20 plus years and I had my own unplanned pregnancy, and it was the compassionate listening that allowed me to make the choice for life. And so that kind of became my um, soapbox, if you will, in saying we cannot judge, we cannot condemn. They're already in a place, these young women who are in an unplanned pregnancy, and they don't know what they're going to do. They don't know the decision that they're making. The last thing they need to do is for someone to point a finger and call them names or come at them in a really harsh, aggressive tone Um, a really unforgiving, you know, kind of tone. And so that became really um, my, kind of my passion in changing the vernacular around that. Because I feel like if you have that compassionate um, understanding, the warmth that that young woman needs, and you get her to take a breath and say, there's time, let's, let's, you know what, let's walk through all the options. Let's talk through all these options. And let us be a support to you. And that comes from that compassionate Mm-hmm. caring person who's willing to listen to um, really listening to what she's facing when she's trying to make that decision. We need to be better listeners and then coming alongside and helping find resources for her to help answer those immediate needs. Amen. And Robin, before we let you go, uh, tell us about the Sea Life 2021 live event that's happening on August 28th. What is it and how can people be involved? Yeah, that is our new campaign. Uh, Sea Life has become an annual event where we just come together with really great speakers, um, music, my favorite part. We will have ultrasounds. Um, and it's just a way for us to come together, join together in a way that's celebrating life. It's a worshipful time. Um, it is family friendly. It's kid friendly. We are in Dallas, Texas on August 28th. Doors open at 530 at the American Airlines Center. We'd love to have your folks join us. Um, It is going to be an amazing night um, just celebrating life. Yeah, and we're excited about what you guys are doing. As a reminder, Focus on the Family is one of our ministry partners here at AM 1160. And you can hear Focus on the Family every weekday at 1130 a.m. on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And again, go check out focusonthefamily.com slash life, and you can see some of those videos that we were talking about. Again, Robin, really excited by what you guys are doing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for the long-term partnership. We couldn't do it without you all. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Grateful to be joined all day by Clarissa Mall. Uh, Clarissa's sitting in for Aubrey Sampson, my normal co-host, who is out on vacation this week, but really thankful for Clarissa's generosity and her time. And she's going to stay with us for Friday as well. 
So, Clarissa, you and I, we're both parents. We talked about that earlier in the show. And I got to be honest, let me uh, I want to talk about the pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic, which like two or three weeks ago felt like it was pretty well under control and done. Like we were getting emails from our kids school like, hey, they're not going to probably have to wear masks this year. It kind of felt like things were. And now with Delta variant and everything, it feels like it's just completely turned back on us and things are crazy again. And again, I've said this on the show before, but I've been somewhat not somewhat. I feel like I've, I'm struggling with some discouragement over how quickly things have changed again. So let's just start there generically. How are, how are you right now with where we are as a nation with the pandemic? Well, you know, I think it's definitely been a lot of ups and downs, hasn't it? And uh, sometimes I think that uh, media engagement just fuels that for me. And so recently I have unsubscribed to some news sources that I usually receive into my inbox every day uh, just because I need uh, some space away from all the headlines. Uh, yeah. You know, headlines are always driven with uh, the worst that's coming uh, down the pike and um the life of the believer is one of steadiness in the Lord and uh, a steadiness that is not defined by my circumstances. And yeah. uh, so for me, taking my mind off of the circumstances to some extent helps me to weather that because it is a lot of highs and then a lot of lows. And, um, and, you know, emotionally we can't, we can't keep doing that for a long time. And uh, kind of unplugging has helped me to, um, to just find my own new equilibrium as as things, you know, change, it seems sometimes even by the day. That's right. That's right. How have your kids been? How have they handled this? Uh, probably getting ready for school and other things. Uh, uh, just kind of what has their attitude been through the pandemic and then now as things seem to be happening again? Well, I think we've all been pretty bummed, you know, uh, for them, the vaccination was like a ticket back to normal life. And, right. um, and for me too, I, you know, I, I certainly felt that when I got my jab. Um, but <laughs> it, it hasn't turned out that way. But if there's anything right. that our experience of grief over the last two years has taught us is that you are not in control of every, uh, circumstance in your life. And the sooner you learn to roll with that, uh, the sooner you learn to become adaptable and resilient. Um, the happier you'll end up being, uh, you won't be so tied into those circumstances to give you joy. Yeah. And, and we had you on, gosh, was it a month or two ago to talk about an article you wrote? But I want to circle back to it at the Gospel Coalition, uh, even though things are not necessarily reopening as quickly now. But you wrote an article entitled Life is Reopening. Why am I still so sad? Help people understand what's the what was the article about, but also why did you write it? Why, why did you want to write about that in the midst of life reopening? Well, one of the things that I have learned over the last two years is that grief persists. You know, you can get a new job, start a new relationship, and grief still seems to show up time after time. And, you know, with a lot of the talk about reopening, there was a lot of enthusiasm about getting back to normal life. Uh, but for a lot of people, whether you are a person who's lost a loved one in the pandemic or you've had some job insecurity, housing insecurity, there are a lot of things still left to grieve. And um, it's kind of hard sometimes when everybody wants to celebrate around you and you're still yeah. carrying heavy stuff. And I think for me, that that piece was just a way of saying, hey, you know what? There are those among us who are walking wounded and um, we need to we need to celebrate with um, with care and gentleness uh, for those who are hurting mm. right now. 
Yeah, so that's a really good word right there. And and jumping off of that, this idea of also kind of meeting people where they're at, like people, we all have people in our churches and our schools and our neighborhoods who are super excited to reopen others who are like, nope, I'm still nervous. I'm getting vaccinated. I'm not whatever else it might be. And, and there's a lot of vitriol in our culture right now, right? There's a lot of division. There's a, I appreciate that you said you got off of social media or some of them or some of the medias because that's what you're kind of being fed, this and that. What would you say to the Christ follower out there, to the church member? Like, what is our opportunity? What is our role right now? Kind of understanding how we are culturally, especially around the pandemic. What does it look like right now for us to love our neighbor and to be charitable and to be the hands and feet of Jesus right now? Well, you know, we need no reminding to dislike our neighbor, right? <laughs> That's kind of our, <laughs> That's our, well our bent. And so I think going continually to the sources of news, of inspiration, of hope that remind you, that tell you that truth, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. We need that message all the time. So it means tuning into online church regularly, even if, you know, it would be easier to roll over and go back to sleep. It means showing up if you're mm. able, showing up in the pew and being present to hear those messages of love one another, love one another. Uh, it means connecting with friends near or far, you know, in whatever way uh, makes you comfortable and makes them comfortable to remember that uh, that love is the call of the believer. And uh, there are so many voices out there right now telling us something different. And so I think any kind of activity where we're consistently engaging with that message will, uh, I think, lead us through the mess and uh, and on to more Christ-like living in the in the process. Yeah, I don't I just don't think we get that right now. I've been so it's it's such a struggle watching the church uh and Christ followers around me online or whatever uh not look any different. Like not look any different. Like how people understand. Let me let me close it here. Uh we talk a lot about being a peacemaker. How, why why is that so important? Why when Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers, why is it so important to be a peacemaker and what's it look like to be a peacemaker in a divided culture like we live in right now? Oh, well, you know, our brains are just wired for fight or flight, right? We are ready to either put up our dukes or run away. And uh, the call of the believer is to be peace in whatever circumstance arises. And I think in a world where we've got people wanting to run away or put up their dukes, whether it's social unrest or political unrest, uh, pandemic conflict, we need people to step into that space and say, Jesus calls us to peace. So I'm not going to take either of those postures. I'm simply going to take a posture of love. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. Well, wanted to kind of pick Clarissa's brain there about just how's the pandemic going? A lot of you out there, it's not going well. Uh, maybe you're scared of sickness again, or maybe somebody in your family or yourself are struggling physically, uh, or you're just frustrated that we're back in the spot. The question is, how will we as the church, how do we as Christ followers respond? And and I really think that is one to be wrestled with because we're called to love our neighbor and to be peacemakers and to be unifiers. Uh, and that is our opportunity. Well, coming up next, Clarissa and I are going to end the show with a little bit of inspiration from Dr. Tony Evans. Excited to bring that to you next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Clarissa Mall, filling in for Aubrey Sampson today. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Clarissa, I really want to thank you 
Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing this. And you're going to do it again. You're going to join me again on Friday. Well, this is great. I'm enjoying it. So ever since we started this show, uh, especially in the time of the pandemic, one thing Aubrey and I have tried to do uh, is to uh, end with some uh, inspiration, to end with some challenge, to end with something to keep you thinking as you go about your day. And so I wanted to do that with one of the most inspirational preachers that I know of, Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, Dr. Evans gave a, a talk at the SEND conference, 2021, the SEND conference. Uh, and, and this is just a small clip of it about being representatives of Jesus, no matter your job. And I think it is such, uh, an important, uh, and, uh, an important idea. So let's listen to Dr. Evans here. We have watched the culture decline because we have not had representatives of Jesus Christ invading the structures. You see, a doctor who's being discipled is not just a doctor. He's God's representative in the medical field, so the medical field sees what God looks like when God helps hurting people. A lawyer is not just a lawyer if he's being discipled. He's God's representative in the Bar Association, so the Bar Association sees what God looks like when God tries a case. A teacher is not just a teacher. They're God's representative in the educational sphere, so the educational sphere sees what God looks like when God teaches a lesson because they invade the systems with the character and conduct, the attitudes and actions of the Christ to whom they are submitted. He says, make disciples of the people, but also of the ethnos, of the national realities in which they find themselves. All right, first of all, I just love listening to Tony Evans. Of course, every now and then I say, as a pastor who speaks for a living and a radio host, every now and then, like sometimes when I hear people like Tony Evans, I think to myself, I should never speak again. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just... Uh, that is just so good. But what did you, what stood out to you? What's maybe one thing that stood out to you from what Tony Evans had to say there? Oh, I love how ordinary it is. It, it you know, he's, he's yeah. calling us to a, a Christian faith that is not extraordinary, that does not take uh, particular talents or gifts or skills. He's saying, be who God has called you to be in the space that God has called you to be and uh, be faithful. And, um, you know, maybe faithfulness is the hardest task of all, but it doesn't need extra talent. Mm. Uh, it just needs a fortitude of spirit and uh, persistence that um, that I know I want to cultivate in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I just love when he talks about uh, in our church, we had this phrase and we obviously didn't create this phrase, but there was a phrase that uh, we are called to be everyday missionaries. Uh, mm -hmm. who love Jesus wherever we uh, wherever we live, work and play, who, you know, this idea that it's not about uh, what you do. Uh, Sunday morning is important, but that's not the ultimate that that we're everyday missionaries wherever we live, work and play in our neighborhoods, in our jobs. And I love the way he talked about, no, no, the goal of a Christian doctor is to is to show people uh, what Jesus is like as as he heals and as he does the goal of a Christian lawyer and a Christian teacher uh, and this idea that our jobs uh, aren't what defines us. It's our it's our faith in Jesus. It's our savior who defines us. And then that then inf not just influences that then uh, is the umbrella under which everything, including our jobs, 
uh, falls. And Clarissa, what would you say happens as people really start to embody that, as they really embody I'm a missionary to my job. I'm a missionary to my neighborhood. I'm a missionary to, you know, my kid's team or whatever else it might be. What happens as we as Christ followers really, really start to embody that and live that out? Well, I wonder if it it could cause us to kind of recede from the camera, if you will, to be able to take a step back, to mm. worry less about our performance, about uh, how other people see us, and uh, release us to just live wholeheartedly among those that we are called to serve. Um, I think that a lot of times we we come to sharing our faith with a lot of expectations about how you've got to do it and uh, you've got to have the right words and I've got to be at the top of my game. But um, I, I appreciate uh, Dr. Evans' words because they remind me that uh, all I need to do is uh, show up and uh, be faithful to Jesus' call and he is working the rest out uh, and he will be the one who receives that praise. Yeah, that's a good word, because, again, a lot of times uh, we think, no, it's completely up to me. I've got to do all this stuff. I've got to do this. Uh, But this is super biblical, right? Uh, We are called to be he uses the phrase representatives, but we're called to be ambassadors of Jesus. Like that's part of that's part of my calling. That's part of not part of my calling. That is my calling that in everything I do. Uh, I'm an ambassador of Christ. Of course, let's take this the other way. People, uh, let's take the negative end of this. What happens when we don't do this well? Like what happens when I've got my, a little bit of Christianity here, but then I'm, uh, you know, I'm a Christ follower here, but it doesn't influence my, uh, my job or my employment or my activities. What happens when we live a more segmented life? What's the danger in that? Well, I think it's that compartmentalization that uh, eventually starts to make our faith feel kind of thin. Uh, it's what Brett McCracken talked about. It's when we are uh, choosing our own truth to guide us that, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, our Christian faith doesn't seem quite as appealing anymore. It's when we infuse our faith into every corner of our life that I think we find Jesus absolutely irresistible. Yeah. And so that's a great word from Tony Evans. It's always, gosh, he's so compelling. Uh, but a great word from Tony Evans. You are a representative of Jesus. You're an ambassador of Christ. Now go and live that way. Clarissa, before I let you go, uh, what are, what's on the plans tonight? You're out there in New England. It's a beautiful New England late summer day, I'm sure. Uh, what are you and your family doing for the rest of the evening? Oh, my kids are on a mission trip this week, a local mission trip because of COVID. They weren't able to travel far. And so they are out working with Habitat for Humanity and an organization that works with folks with disabilities and soup kitchens. So I'm going to pick them up and I can't wait to hear the stories of uh, what they've been doing today. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it just it's uh, you don't know this because yeah, I don't know what it's like out in the New England area, but uh, it is super muggy and hot here today. <laughs> so out here in Chicago, the air conditioner sounds really nice today. So we shall see what the rest of the day it does. Well, yes, same here. Doesn't it? Well, Clarissa, thanks for this. Really glad you joined us today. And I hopefully it went well enough that you still want to come back on Friday. What do you think? You're going to do that for us? I think that sounds great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we're really glad that all of you joined us as well for this. I'll be back tomorrow. And then Clarissa is going to be back joining me again on Friday. We hope that you can join us. And we hope that you have a great rest of your day. Again, for Clarissa Mall, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.